Hello, everybody, and welcome back to 21st Century Vitalism. Uh, if you're new to the show, this is a podcast exploring how we can best maintain a sense of energy, inspiration, and wakefulness while dealing with the unique stressors of this very strange and potent time. My name is Brett. I'm going to be your host on this journey. For those of you rejoining us, I want to say thank you for your patience as we are coming back from a brief hiatus. I had some uh, personal, professional, developmental things that I needed to attend to this spring, but I am back with a whole new host of conversations uh, waiting your eardrums. I am so excited uh, to start unveiling some of these episodes to you that I have. Uh, they're really, really dang good. And because they're so good, I wanted to also take a moment to kind of update some of the things so you might notice the visuals are a little bit different as well as the intro song. Uh, so I worked with Michael Rempel, who is one of the co-founders of the band Lotus, on creating that uh, amazing piece. I mean, it was all him. Uh, and it was just so seamless and wonderful, and I'm just so happy with how that turned out. So I really want to start by saying just thank you so much to Michael for his enthusiasm and uh, his hard work on such an amazing piece. If you want anything for your show um, or whatever project you're working on, I'm going to have the links to his stuff down below. He's really a, a treat to work with. Uh, so yeah, like I said, you know we have a, a quite a few episodes uh, waiting to be released right now and we're gonna kick off this new chapter of the show with uh an actual really incredible human being that i have just found such a, an incredible honor in hosting for this platform her name is the venerable rabina corton she is a buddhist nun uh, ordained for over 45 years she has a very long and storied life of service and engagement with these practices and uh, community outreach namely with her uh, project the liberation prison project which she has gone to found which has served over 20,000 inmates in helping bringing uh, buddhist practice and mindfulness practice to folks who are oftentimes forgotten by society. Uh, it's such an important and amazing work. She has done a lot of things. I really encourage you to check out the documentary that was uh, filmed about her life. It's called Chasing Buddha. It's free on YouTube. It really is uh, an incredible story that she has lived. She's done so much for uh, the community and her lineage, and she's really a force of nature. For the folks who are plugged into this uh, world of Buddhism, you probably already know her for her fierce and clear and compassionate uh, explorations of Buddhism. So this was a huge uh, honor and treat for me to be able to host her on here. Uh, for today's episode, we're going to be talking about this idea that she has of becoming your own therapist and this very um, somewhat obvious seeming, but frankly, fairly difficult notion of being able to change your mind. Uh, this is such a good conversation. I've listened to it multiple times at this point and still find something new every time. So if this is something that clicks for you, I encourage you to check out her platform, uh, rabinacorton.com. Link will be down below. Uh, also check her out on social media. She's on Facebook, Instagram, maybe TikTok. I think that too. I'm not on there. I wouldn't know. But she has really amazing bite-sized, pithy teachings that she releases every couple of days. Uh, really just good hits of dharma to get you through the day and contemplate. And she has just such a great speaking style. And I just am absolutely in love with everything that she's doing right now. So that's what we have going on. If you want to stay in contact with this show, please consider subscribing over on YouTube. Uh, hit the bell, uh, like, do all that stuff. You're a part of the digital age. You know how it works. Instagram, Facebook. I'm not on TikTok. I have refused thus far. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Uh, I think that's it for the general housekeeping stuff. Really, welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm so excited for this next batch of uh, conversations. Uh, I've been sitting on them for a moment, and I am just so excited with where the show is going. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Uh, whatever you need to do, whether it's kicking back, drinking some tea, just please open your heart for today's guest, Venerable Rabina Corton. All right. 
Venerable Ravina, hello and welcome. It's an honor to have you on. Um, I've been plugged into your platform for the better part of a year now, and I've found it to be incredibly insightful. So thank you for all your work. I'm delighted. Thank you. Good, good, good. So for the folks who are not uh, familiar with you, uh, you've been a lifelong Mm -hmm. practitioner of Buddhism. Uh, You have taught thousands of people at this point, including some Mm -hmm. folks who are in some pretty dire circumstances, um, serving life sentences in prisons across the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. as I come to understand based on my time with your content, one of the most perennial messages that I've recognized is this notion that we can actually change our minds. And it's something that sounds so plain and so simple, but I think when people hear that, they might feel a pang of excitement and also maybe like overwhelm. It's like, how is that even possible? Yeah, that's it. That's it. How do we get started with this with this process? I, know, I think that's a really good point. And it does sound so simple, it's almost embarrassing. It's like a joke, you know, change your mind. What are you talking about? Of course I can change my mind. But it's very clear. Everything, I think, is stacked against us changing our minds. And I think even that means this is not being rude, but I think our philosophical views, our, psych, our scientific views, they all seem to buy into the idea that the outside, this is the way to put it, the outside world is the main influence in our lives, you know, but the Buddha's approach is so absurdly different. It's like, no, 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 it's pretty powerful. You can't, you can't deny, but the mind is, is the one that's the most powerful. And that's, that's pretty encouraging. And that's why, I mean, I found working with people in prison where they don't have the luxury to change the outside, where you either then would go mad or you change your mind, you know? So that's for me is such a power. There's such good examples of the efficacy of this approach, you know? But so I think the starting point is to actually consider, to think about the logic of it and see what well, maybe that sounds like a possibility. That it's, that, that my, so what it means by changing your mind, and we can go into this up to you, is by changing your, the way you interpret something. And that's a surprise because when you think, you know, like if you're angry um, and you think, and you think you can change your anger, but what do you mean? How, what do you mean change your attitude? Because the, the, the Buddhist approach is we have these very intense emotional um, states, and we all know them, jealousy, depression, anxiety, anger, low self-esteem. We know they're painful. But to hear that they're actually attitudes, to hear that they're really emotional expressions of a concept of, of a conceptual thoughts, of interpretations of something, that's the part that takes time. But we can go into that. We can discuss it, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of the general consensus, and maybe this is just uh, me uh, being uh, just transparent about how I feel about it, oftentimes when we are met with an experience that seems really overwhelming, there's kind of an instantaneous nature to, say, anger. It, it, it arises so mm-hmm. quickly. So the idea for folks who have really severe outbursts, the idea of like, wait, you're telling me that I can respond differently? You know, it can be really mm. hard to, uh, you know, the experience of something so fiery and intense. Yeah. How do we begin to kind of chip away at that habitual thing that's been with us our entire lives? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I can really speak from experience. I mean, I really felt in my life that anger was like my middle name, you know. So I think there's various reasons it's hard to hear. So the very first one, I'd say, well, there are many, and this is all sort of, I think we can verify it with our own experience, but this is coming straight from the Buddhist analysis, but putting it in very down-to-earth, down-to-earth words, you know. I think that um, um, it's, it's, it seems deeply ingrained in us that when something bad does happen and bad things do happen, people do terrible things to each other in, on this planet. We can't argue with that, you know. Look at the world every day. So there's no doubt that terrible things happen. So then when if we have a tendency to be angry, and that's not everybody's tendency, um, then it's we really believe what do, what do you mean change my mind I am right look what that person did to me I'm allowed to be angry so we have this very inbuilt belief that it's justified whatever response we have and in in one sense you can say of course I'm allowed to be angry if you punch me in the nose of course I'm allowed to be angry but this analysis here is simply what we need to learn to look at is is the suffering that that anger causes. And that is a tremendous thing that's so difficult because what I believe utterly is that it's not my anger that causes me suffering, it's your punch in the nose that causes me suffering. 
And that's the part that's really hard to hear, you know. I remember, I mean, always example I give, a really good example, a very powerful example of, of actually a friend in prison. Her name is Sunny. I think she wrote a memoir. This is back in the 70s. It's just this nice Jewish girl with a hippie husband and hippie kids hitching in Florida, and they get picked up by two guys. I don't know the whole story. I can't remember. But she's a friend of mine now. She's out of prison. She's old now. She's living in Ireland. Uh, she got out after 17 years. But she was um, – they were picked up and then somehow the, the two guys driving the car got stopped by the police and the two guys killed the police and blamed the hippies. So they were on death row in Florida. The husband eventually got executed. His head burst into flames. I mean, like nightmarish story, one after the other. You can't imagine it, you know. She was in solitary confinement for years. I mean, it's like it's like medieval, the kind of intense treatment. So they were both totally and utterly innocent. She eventually was found to be innocent and she got out after 17 years. But she's this amazing example of a person. And what's so interesting, she's not a Buddhist. She's not religious in any way. But So the only way I can put it is she somehow was able to find this kind of emotional, she had this emotional intelligence. For me, it's the only way to say it, that she she's not a Buddhist. She'd never heard of Buddhism. She didn't think about Buddhism. But this is exactly the point the Buddha's making, that it is possible, no matter how bad the situation is, you can learn to see it differently, refer to it, respond to it differently, not just blind, you know blindly with the unhappy emotions. So what she was able to do, she was in her cell on her own, isolated, you know, you can't believe it initially. You can't believe that these people aren't going to believe that you didn't do this thing, right? So eventually she she said she she said she finally said, I finally realized I could not change anything, but they couldn't take my mind from me. So she said she said, I decided different things she said, and we've discussed it since, but she said, I, I finally so I decided um I decided I am not a prisoner, I am a monk. I am not in a cell, I'm in a cave. Now that can sound very romantic, like she's living in la-la land, but I mean, there's far more to it than that. But basically she said she knew she had the choice not to go crazy. She had the choice not to be in, go out, out of her brain with anger. She had the choice to change the way she interpreted. So, I mean, it sounds so simple, but it's absolutely outrageous. And so the, so the whole point of it is this. It's not moralistic. Oh, you're naughty. You shouldn't be angry. It's not the point. The point is if we start to look into our minds, we're going to see the pain of anger, depression, jealousy, anxiety, and they are all got the same character of being deeply disturbing to oneself. And that brings two consequences. One is you completely lose your mind. You have no common sense left, especially with anger. You've completely lost the plot. You've gone off the planet. You have no control. You can't control anything you think or do or say, and you can literally go mad, which is not uncommon. So I remember one at the same time of reading about Sunny. This other fellow on death row, also innocent, and this is not uncommon, unfortunately, who'd been accused of rape and murder, he'd be what we call normal, that he completely did go crazy. He went out of his brain every day as long as he had a voice. He would be screaming, I did not rape and kill that woman. I did not rape and kill that woman. Now, we would say that's normal. That's reasonable. Of course he acts this way. Look what they've done to him. All of those points are true. Look what they've done to him. But the, the, the thing is that's so hard to see if you'd gone to him then out of kindness and said, well, you know, sweetheart, there are ways you can learn to be less angry and less out of your brain so you don't lose your sanity so that you can become more relaxed. And even then, if you want to do something about getting out of prison, which is what happened to Sunny, because she didn't lose the plot, she continued to never give up working on her freedom and she eventually got freedom. But when you've lost your mind, when you're out of your brain with despair, grief, loss, depression, you name it, you can't lift a finger for yourself or anyone else. And this is how we, can, we know it's true. But if we're fixated on but the person, look what they did to me. I'm allowed to be angry. It's just, it, it, it's you're right, but what good is it? And it's hard to get to this. It's hard to navigate to get to this because it sounds so heavy, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it seems like the... Yeah, yeah. It seems like the deciding factor that differentiated those experiences was that prerequisite of the emotional intelligence that you alluded to. I say that's right. I agree. Totally. She was a miracle. She was amazing. It's most unusual to find a person. I mean, even all the, you know, this is Buddhist teachings. I could say it's Buddhist teachings. He didn't invent this. He just is an expert at it. That's all. And she didn't know any of that. She just had this inbuilt in her, you know, this ability to see that she, she knew she didn't have to go mad and she had the power to do it herself. That's pretty incredible, actually. 
It is. So for the people who might not have such a awareness of that direct yeah. connection to the emotional right. intelligence, yeah. can they develop yeah. that? Or is that something that's just kind of hereditary or how do they? No, no, no. I that? think it's not as, yeah, that's the point. We all, we all got the power to. So I suppose the first point is has to, you have to know, you have to be, I mean, the Buddha's point is, it's not, it's not It's not. punitive. We hear it as very punitive, or you shouldn't be angry, you shouldn't be jealous, you're, you're naughty, you know. We hear it as very punitive, but that's not the point. It's really a person, you know. I mean, the, the Buddha in this case, his approach is, look, sweethearts, look, dear ones, do you not see how much pain it causes you? He's trying to get us to see that the anger and the depression and the anxiety and the despair are actually the main source of the pain, not the external person or event and that so it's to learn to try and see the truth of that and that takes courage itself because there's a powerful kind of righteousness to anger especially I know for myself so you have to just know it's possible and have a genuine and, and really it's it's I mean the way they say it in Buddhism you have to recognize that it causes you suffering and you're sick of suffering so it's like you, you know you're only when you finally realize your attachment to alcohol is what's destroying you yes the alcohol's pretty powerful but you've got the power to change it's the same principle you have to first be exhausted by the suffering of it and then see it sounds reasonable let's see if I've got the courage to do it and it's a lifelong practice I mean anger has been my common response to things and I used to pride myself and and the other point that I think is powerful Okay, there's so many things we can talk about here, but I think one of the crucial things is to be able to distinguish between finding fault and being angry with it. I remember Martin Luther King, I was, I was an old radical lefty political activist before I was a Buddhist, right? And I remember being very involved in, in the 60s and 70s. I remember Martin Luther King, he said, it's good to find fault. It's good to see the injustice, the suffering, the racism, the poverty, which means but but then he then he said but then you say what can i do to help which is compassion not anger so anger would be on top of that it's a fact that there's poverty it's a fact that you punch me in the nose it's a fact that you're on death row and you're innocent they're facts that's not meaning that's not anger they're facts so then it's it's to see the, it's to distinguish between the simple fact that that is, and that is wrong, and then see what you can do about it, and that demands sanity and clarity. But we assume because a bad thing happened, well, of course I'm angry. What do you expect? If if we don't real, if we don't realize they're two separate things, that's quite a revelation, I think. Or even like you get a pain in your knee. Of course I'm angry. I've got a pain in my knee. No, a pain in the knee is fact. Let's see how I can interpret it. Let's see how I can observe it and do something about it. So it's really very clear that point. So our trouble is we think when you say don't get angry, we think it's chucking the baby out with the bathwater and becoming passive. Not at all. It's not like that at all. It's a big, big difference. Yeah. One of the, when I started practicing Buddhism about three years ago, I'm fairly fresh at mm -hmm. it, but one of the really mm -hmm. turning teachings for me was uh, from Pema Chodron, and it was about our wisdom being intertwined with our neuroses, as she called them. And referencing mm -hmm. that all the things that actually cause us hang-ups contain within them the inherent wisdoms and kind of gems of our expression and that idea that anger is clarity is is that that's a very it's, it's a very no that's a I, I, that's a very good point that's actually speaking philosophically that's taken from the highest the, the esoteric teachings in Buddhism from the Vajrayana. I mean, the very first level of practice in Buddhism is just be controlled, be disciplined, control your, not even control your anger yet, but control the servants of your anger and your attachment and your jealousy and, and control your body and speech. Harness the energy of your body and speech because that's what does the harm to others. Then with practice, you can start, not start now to look into your mind and see the pain of anger, the pain of depression, the pain of anxiety and jealousy. Then you can get to the point of developing compassion, the Bodhisattva path. Then then you can get to the point of seeing what she's pointing out, which is something very powerful. So I can see that with my own mind. You know, if you look at a person who's, I mean, angry, I can see I've learned to to distinguish the positive qualities, which is what you're saying. Because when a, a person's angry, they're finding fault. They've got an ability to distinguish. Well, look at that and look at that and look at that. And that's terrible. That That's a fact. There is injustice. There is poverty. But then if you take the emotional component, and this is the point about it, and give up the self-centered component, the self-righteous component, which is the angry childish, which is the angry component, keep that wisdom, keep that sharpness, and then learn to want to change things without going crazy.
Equally, you can see you flip that over, you see the the good quality of patience is incredible. You don't lose the plot. But there's a negative side, to you could argue, for, for patient people, you become passive. So we need to not be passive, but to be active, but not angry, but patient. So it's a very interesting mixture, but it's really true what you're saying. And that means that that only comes when you start to really see your own mind very well. So you don't chuck the baby out with the bathwater and become sort of some passive, pathetic person thinking you've given up anger. And it's easy to mistake it like that. Yeah. So for the people who hear this, I mean, it's very clear. It seems very easy to understand on an intellectual level. But I feel like embodying that kind of teaching, what is the the path of turning the words that you're saying into an actual internal ability to yogically surf that? It just takes time, you know, really, really takes time, Brett. So I think, I mean, the classic Buddhist approach, and depending on even the system you're using in Buddhism, because it's taught in many different ways in many different countries, um, the classic way of putting it, like I, in a sense, I said, as I said before, this is one approach. When you start to realize taking the, the Buddhist, you read a bit of book. Okay, the first step is you read a bit. You read it. You listen to some teachings. You, you see, well, that sounds interesting. I'd like to look into that. And then you start to read a few things and think about it. So the, but, but the classic approach, as I just said very briefly before, would be given that you, you know, say you read a bit about the Buddha's view and he's telling us, that what goes on in our mind is the main source of our happiness and suffering. And then you start to try and think, well, I'd like to see that. So then you start to realize that your suffering is the main. So you look, you look at your suffering and you want to start lessening the suffering. And you've got to be realizing you're sick of suffering. It's not some moralistic idea, oh, I should be a nice girl. You've got to want to be sick of suffering and know that what goes on in here does play a role. That's the first step. So then the very first step, and this sounds so boring in a way, like I said before, the classic presentation of the Buddha's teachings is the first job is you control the servants of your anger, the servants of your attachment, the servants of your jealousy. You, you can, And especially for us, maybe we don't go around killing and raping too many people, but look at our speech. This sounds so boring in a way, but it's quite profound. If you make a decision to control your speech, don't say those words, 90% of your problems in your relationships in your daily life will be solved. Then they often say in Buddhism, when you're with others, control your behavior. When you're on your own, then you can control your mind. So because behavior is so automatic, because the mind, I mean, my anger in my life when I was a kid, I I never thought for one millisecond I'm going to be angry. I just exploded the second, you know, I didn't get what I wanted, if you like. So controlling the body and speech is a very profound way to start. Then you can learn to meditate or you can start to meditate learn little meditation techniques that enable you this is a mindfulness techniques really that enable you to step back and become aware of what the hell is going on in this crazy head of ours and that's a bit scary when they even say in the texts there's there's this description of the meditation technique that was invented by these indians actually well before the buddha I mean, I remember the Dalai Lama said it was these amazing Indians more than 3,000 years ago who were the ones who began the investigation into the nature of self. I mean, we arrogant Western people probably think it was Freud 100 years ago, you know, which is ridiculous. So, and we're, we're discovering the wisdom of these amazing Indians now. This is before the Buddha. This technique that's known as shamatha in Sanskrit or concentration meditation, which is the basis of what the world knows roughly as mindfulness. It's this brilliant technique that enables you to start to concentrate, to, to, to focus your mind instead of following every crazy thought. We're not going to get it overnight, but we can start. And so they say in the texts when they describe this process, one of the signs of success in the very beginning is that you think you're getting worse. You think your mind's getting more crazy. No, we're noticing it. And that's part of the difficulty because one of the, the kind of the mistaken views of meditation, which is rather naive, is you're learning to meditate so you can, so you can get rid of your thoughts. Well, you can't, that's absurd. They're deeply ingrained. So one of the one of the results of, of simply learning to do five minutes a day of mindfulness is you, 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 the technique you're doing is deciding to watch the breath, let's say. That's your job. But you can't help but hear all the thoughts. You just learn to not follow them, and that's pretty powerful. And then you bring to bear after that into your daily life, in the kitchen, on the freeway, this ability to notice your thoughts. And that's a brand new thing for us. It sounds surprising, but it's really true. I mean, Lama Zopa, one of my teachers, he says, and it sounds pretty shocking, that the vast majority of people on this planet have no idea – this sounds shocking, have no idea 
that what goes on in their mind plays any role at all in their lives. And what that means is we're just addicted to the outside world. I mean, we can be forgiven for that. You know, you wake up in the morning until you go to sleep. What are you paying attention to? The world, people, things. You know, it's all the outside world. We rarely give a moment to notice our own mind, and this is the miracle. So learn to control your mouth if you can, if you have to, before you vomit out the words. Learn, you know, that will solve a lot of the problems. That demands discipline. Then get your practice going and start to observe using meditation techniques like the breath, and then slowly in your daily life you then become aware of all the thoughts that are going on before they vomit out the mouth, before you want to kill your husband or, you know, kill your kid. It's a slow, gradual process, you know. It's a gradual, and it's very organic. But to know it's possible is what keeps us courage to persevere, you know. Yeah. yeah. It's a very courageous path. I mean, I've heard it compared to that of warriorship, just the simple act of taking your seat, as my teacher has said it to me, and just yes. opening up to the flow of your own internal dialogue. There's a lot of... Yes, sir very tricky energies that can come up. And it's funny that you mentioned that a lot of people assume it to be this blissful trance-like state where you're just totally pieced out. It's actually a very aggravating kind of space. You deal with boredom, you deal with all of your neurotic qualities that you go through your day trying to ignore and subdue, but are actually controlling so much of how you respond to the world. So, I mean- acknowledging just the nature of that painful quality sometimes of sitting and the courage it takes. Um, you know, I, I imagine some people who have very troubled uh, backstories who are really repressing a lot of these things, it probably comes up as they're sitting on the cushion. Do you have any advice for people who may have trauma that um, like really severe embodied yes. trauma like how would they yes, be able right. to engage with mindfulness without getting re-traumatized and well maybe, you know maybe mindfulness is not the right approach and there's all sorts of ways it's not the only type of approach i mean every word that i'm saying is implying a, a mindfulness simply insofar as it's becoming aware of what the hell is happening in your mind but i mean well for example myself you know my nature is kind of volatile you can see and busy and speedy so I know when I, I really, when I first heard the Buddhist teachings when I was 30, 31 or something, quite a few years ago, I knew immediately it was the path that I'd wanted. My life had led to this, you know. And, but I knew I had not the slightest interest in sitting on my bottom meditating. I had no interest, but I did want to know my mind. So I just didn't equate meditating with knowing my mind. You can learn to know your mind in a very proactive way. You can learn to be hearing what you're thinking and going, what's going on and deal with it. In a, I mean, look at people who go to therapy. You're dealing with your mind in the most intensive way. Your eyes aren't closed. It's not the only method. It's kind of rather naive to think it is. In the long term, we need to be on the cushion to get the mind to the subtler levels that it can access, but 99% of us won't get there. So we have to know the kind of person we are, you know. So proactive ways of learning to be aware of what's going on, we might need support. If you've if you've got the type of mind where you've suppressed all your dramas, and that's all trauma is. Trauma, I think, not that's all, but trauma is a word we use to refer to when bad things have happened since we're born, since we're little, and we haven't been equipped to handle them. It's very simple. If you, you know, if you've got a fairly peaceful nature and your father starts whacking you, you're not going to respond with anger. You're going to, you're going to suppress with enormous fear and you will push it right out of your memory. You understand? So I can see like in my life, one advantage of me not being that kind of peaceful person was I didn't suppress. I would shout and yell at my father. I would fight with my father. So I didn't suppress. So one one good aspect of that is I I I was in I was engaged in it. So there was not suppression. There was less fear involved, which is kind of ironic, you know. I still have to learn to so do you see what I'm saying? So it depends on the person. So if if we have got so much trauma, I mean, I've met so many people who have, you know, who haven't been able to deal with it and so have put it away. We maybe need a more safe place rather than just sitting on our own cushion. That's not maybe, that's not, it's not advisable perhaps because we haven't been able to deal. It's going to be too much for it all to come up. It's just too much. That's why in the West, there are so many good people good therapists who can help us learn to, who can be a safe place to help us learn to deal with what's going on in ourselves, you know. And the interesting point here, though, Brett, I think the key Buddhist approach to it, and this is the hard part, is the emphasis on the state of mind, not on the act, not on the event. And our problem is we only remember the event. You see, this is, I think this is a very interesting point. Um, 
you say, Rabina, tell me about your happiness. And I won't tell you about my happiness, which is in my mind. I'll tell you about the event. I'll describe the cake or the boyfriend. Tell me about your suffering, Rabina, and I'll describe the, the, the wrong cake and the wrong boyfriend. So we're always only remembering the event. And that very much is the Western approach. The Buddhist one is more profound when you can do it, you get in touch with whatever the name of the state of the mind was. Attachment, anger, jealousy, they're the names of the state of the mind that are triggered by that event. And that's the awareness we have to cultivate. That's the awareness. And then the ownership of those states of mind. Yeah. Do you understand? Yeah, yeah. So I uh, have a keen interest in trauma science as a manual therapist okay. myself, engaging with people's bodies. And a lot of the new science okay. has come out with the idea that trauma, it, it settles in the body and it's constantly yes. reconstituting itself. Yes. So in that yes. field, it's less about the event because the event is long gone, but it's that the body yeah, is go. stuck recirculating yes. and it's like it's living yep. that event over well, and over well, let me just say this. What I find that very fascinating, if you know anything about the Vajrayana, which is the esoteric teachings that are mainly, I think, extant in Tibet, you know, the esoteric teachings, which coming directly from the, the Ayurvedic system, it's very similar to the Chinese acupuncture system. The way we're constructed, this is very, this is very helpful. I, I find this very helpful. Um, it's this, they're expressing this extremely intimate, inextricable relationship between the physical and the mental. So it's not the neuroscientific model. It's quite different, but it's very, it's very interesting. So we've got, according to that model, we've got gross consciousness, which is our senses, and that's clearly related to the physical, the eyes, the ears, and the so on, you know. But then we've got what they call subtle consciousness, which is our mental states. They're more subtle. And what they're, so the, at the physical level, subtle, they talk about subtle body. That's made up of these 72,000 subtle channels and then like a nervous, subtle nervous system. And coursing through all those, that subtle nervous system are these different wind energies or prana. Now, this is how we used to talk in the West, but they still talk like this in Tibetan Buddhism, in the medical system, in the Tibetan medical system, in the Ayurvedic, in the Chinese system, these subtle wind energies. And those subtle wind energies coursing through all this nervous system which is our subtle body, are intimately linked to the different states of mind. So it makes total sense if you've got repression and fear and anger, that's going to completely mess up with your wind energies, which is the physical body, but at a subtler level. So there's different approaches. You, you know, one is to work on the physical, which can then enact the mental to enable it to come to the surface, or one is you work on your mind, and in that way you purify the physical. So both are very valid. So it makes sense. The body and the mind at a subtle level are intimately connected, you know. Everything yeah. we think and say affects the physical at the subtler level, which then impacts at the grosser level of sickness and those kinds of things. That's wonderful. I, I like and One that more you, point. Yeah. One more, just to say one more point, Brett. What's fascinating <laughs> about the Buddhist psychological model, they say there's nothing we've ever seen or heard or tasted or touched or smelt or thought about that ever goes astray. Everything is stored in our memory. Now, look how we don't remember 99% of one day. So we suppress most of our experiences, and then we distort them when we do remember them. But they're all stored in our mind, and they're able to be accessed using the Buddhist model of the mind. You know, We've got these subtle levels of cognition, and we can learn to access. So, by, And that's where I think dealing with trauma, if we can learn to have appropriate help and support or do it on our own, it's up to us. It's when you can... Because what anger, what seems to me, okay, what I need to, I'd like to talk just briefly about attachment. As you know, this is a fundamental Buddhist trip. But it's far more subtle than we think. So, as you know very well, the Buddha talks about the three poisons, which sounds so cute, you know. So, basically, there's attachment and aversion. And according to the Four Noble Truths, attachment's our main problem, and all the other neuroses stem from it. But of course, that's so different in our culture because we don't use the word like this. But attachment is this primordial emotional hunger, this dissatisfaction, this possessiveness, this neediness, this expectation. It's this painful state of mind that has mainly this sense of dissatisfaction. I'm not enough. I don't have enough. So then it, then it, it manifests as kind of hankering and craving after something. And so all, that's driving everything. So this attachment for the Buddha is the default deep in the bones of our being, and it's this one way of describing it in an essential way, is that it's this constant hunger, emotional hunger, to only get the nice things. It only can cope with the nice things. Attachment is like a junkie that only wants nice sound, nice smell, nice taste, nice feeling. So what is the response when it doesn't get that 
That's aversion. And aversion is the bare bone state of mind that's called anger. So anger is the volatile level. Upset, irritated, frustrated, annoyed is a milder level of anger. And we never pay attention to that. And that's a thousand times a day. And then even more subtle than that, it becomes depression and despair. So we run between this attachment and aversion a thousand times a day. So naturally, when your father beats you or that mean person does something harmful to you as a little girl or later, the first response is to have aversion to it because attachment didn't get what it wanted. So aversion can then manifest as you shout. If you shout and yell, I'd shout at my father or somebody would suppress. So depending on the person. So if we can learn to bring up those memories and confront it and look at it, open the door to it, that dissipates the fear, that dissipates the trauma because it's this intense fear of that thing that we can't stand, you know. And fear is the character. As far as Buddha is concerned, fear is the character of all these painful emotions. That's why when you've, you've realized emptiness and you've cut the root of all the nonsense, you literally have given up fear. So it's a very encouraging view, you know. This is our potential, Buddha says. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I've been contemplating this past week a lot about boredom and its role in meditation. And um, as my teacher's teacher, who is Chogyam Trumpa, has talked a lot about yes. the differentiations between cool boredom and hot boredom and settling into mm -hmm. this idea like there's a, an initial irritation that's really kind of a painful thing when you get really bored and you're like, oh, I don't know, I'm uncomfortable. But then it settles into so a space. So that's you call it boredom, but you call it boredom. So what do you mean by boredom? Just the inability. What do you mean by boredom? Yeah, just the desire to be away from the raw experience of just existing. Like you need to like entertain. Right. And that's, that's what I was going to ask. That's aversion. Yeah. That's a, I mean, if you think of these three poisons, and this is not, it's such a cute kind of model, three poisons, for God's sake. What are you talking about? It sounds so cute. But actually, the more we study the Buddhist model, it's quite, it goes to profound levels. So basically, the main one is ignorance, which is this misconception of the self, this wrong view of this a primordially deep misconception of the very nature of our self. That's the root one, ignorance. Then it gives rise to attachment, this constant emotional hunger to get what that fantasy I wants. Then the millisecond attachment doesn't get what it wants. It turns into aversion. So there can be mild versions of it and then very volatile ones. So to say boredom... And that means indifference, and that's 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 kind of like going to sleep in a way. That's kind of like dull. But the, the, the wanting to get away from that discomfort—that's aversion. That's aversion. That's it's a, that's the milder level of anger. So we have attachment. You're all, if you're all excited and everything's going lovely, you run towards the object. So if you have if you sit and do your meditation and you have a nice feeling, you're all excited and happy. If you don't have a nice feeling, you're all bored. To, or you're bored, yeah. Aversion. You want to get away from it. So we run towards something which is attachment, or we run away from it, which is aversion. These are the primordial ones. I'd, I'd put it like that. Actually, what yeah. do you think? I think that sounds right. So what happens in those circumstances when you actually get what you want? Well, that's the tricky part, isn't it? I mean, that's good. Attachment, you see, is so subtle, so total, so utter, so primordial. But the, the encouraging thing, as we know from, <coughs> from Buddhist teachings, is <coughs> that attachment and anger and all the other neuroses are not intrinsic to us. They're not at the core of our being. So having that courage to know that, we learn to ever more subtly identify or distinguish, if you like, the attachment from the good qualities. So let's say, you know, um, you want it, you drive the car and your attachment is automatically there and only wants it to be lovely. So the sign of success <clears throat> that it's not so much attachment running the show is when if the car jumps in front of you, you don't get so annoyed. That proves you're not so attached. So then you can and, and then you can still and so you would be enjoying the drive because you are getting what you want, which is a, a, a hassle-free drive, but you can it's not coming only from attachment. The sign that that happy feeling is coming only from attachment is if you freak out when the car jumps in front of you. That's a real sign of success when you can handle the bad thing happening. You can navigate it. That's the sign of success. Yeah. That's the indication that it's not only attachment running the show. You get my point? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think a lot yeah. of people who haven't spent a lot of time with these teachings, and to a degree myself, um, associate uh, they associate attachment and desire. And I think a lot of people, especially yeah. here in the West, have a hard time mm. giving up the desire for certain circumstances in life. It could be kind of a hard yeah. sell. Is there a way to work with desire in a way that doesn't produce attachment? Yes. Like if you want to express in a okay. certain way, uh, like me in this I podcast, know. I have a desire to have a successful podcast. That's almost like the well, fuel to, yeah. 
You know, I mean, it, it's very interesting. Again, this takes us to the different levels of teachings. The very first level, which is known in the world as the Theravadan teachings, it's the teachings we share with that path. This is the kind of the, the very basic level of Buddhist teachings where we, we're cautious, we control our body, control our speech, and on the basis of that you'd live in vows, you'd have a very simple life. According to that level, you wouldn't have too much cake or sex or drugs or rock and roll. You'd harness your crazy energy and you would learn to be satisfied. You'd learn to be content. That's the method of giving up attachment it's very it's it sounds totally boring but when you're on that when you go then you go to the bodhisattva path and you have, if you like you can have your cake and eat it too but you've got to be very wise and skillful that is you can then i mean okay it's going to be a while before we've given up attachment that's when you finally realize emptiness when you've given up the nonsense when you really achieve the highest levels so we've got to learn to live with it and navigate it as we progress on our path so the major, the powerful way to do that on the bodhisattva path is you change your motivation. So there you are doing a podcast. You want to be useful to human beings. But of course, you know, Brett, his attachment wants it to be nice. He doesn't want people to hate him. This is normal. We all don't want to be hated. So as long as you know that, so then if you have a pure motivation, I want to do this podcast so I can help benefit sentient beings so they can see their minds, that motivation becomes more powerful. And that's a valid, it's a good motivation. That's not just attachment. If you only do it for, you know, because attachment's the the very nature, the, the attachment's the main voice of ego, basically. So it's mainly attachment. You'll always be disappointed. But if you have a kind of a more altruistic motivation that you plug in alongside the attachment, then it's more, prof the action you do is more profound and can be more beneficial. And that can lessen your attachment. And that'll make you more authentic, more clear. And more courageous because you're not just doing it to get be successful and be applauded, you know. Right. You're doing it because you want to be a benefit to others, and that grows. That's bodhicitta, basically. Yeah, yeah. That kind of leads me to. I mean, my perception of the unfolding of the path is you work on yourself, and then you naturally will end up opening up to others. And yeah. I think that's mirrored that's in right. a lot that's of right. religious traditions. Yeah. What about the yeah, nature of true. taking this work on naturally opens us? Like, well, how does that unfold? Yes. Well, you know, I think without, I mean, you know, this is, I, I repeat it all the time, this is a wonderful analogy, and this is particularly, I think, the Mahayana component. You've got, you know, you've, a bird needs two wings, wisdom and compassion. So the wisdom wing is this first stages of practice, the Theravadan level of the practice, where you control your body, your speech, and your mind. You give, you get renunciation. You live a very simple life. You you really learn to harness your crazy energy, and that's a profound thing already. So then, on top of that, you add the Bodhisattva path, which is the compassion component. So. But even without adding proactively the compassion component, it's fairly obvious that if you take the view, the Buddhist view, that we've got this neurotic sense of an eye, its main voice is attachment, this emotional hunger to get what the eye wants. It then gets upset when it doesn't. And then jealousy and pride and arrogance and all the rest come from that. They're the neuroses, okay? And I think that's a great word. Buddha would have liked that term. They're all the unhappy states of mind, the afflictions, the delusions, you know. And Buddha's very specific in identifying them as quite different from the positive states of mind. And our job is to distinguish between these. So as you lessen, so if you recognize that attachment and anger and depression and jealousy are the source of your pain, they're necessarily eye-based, they're totally fear-based, they only cause you suffering, and they therefore cause you to harm others. So naturally, your very first level of practice, even lessening attachment, lessening anger, lessening depression and low self-esteem, gr automatically grows your empathy, makes you a little bit closer to others. So then you can proactively work on the compassion component and, and become profoundly beneficial to others. So it's, it's natural progress, a very natural progress, you know, even before you get to the compassion wing. There on the body Bodhisattva path, you then learn to continue to work on your mind. That never ceases. But now it's in reference to how to be of benefit to others. The very first level of practice is how to be a benefit to yourself, and we shouldn't discount that. Then it's to be beneficial to others. It's a very logical process. I mean, as the Dalai Lama says, compassion, which is the point, it's not enough. You've got to have wisdom, which is the first stages of practice. Put yourself together first. How can I help... How can I help you with nutrition if I haven't got the wisdom and nutrition myself? How can I help you play the piano if I can't play the piano? But when it comes to helping people in general, we don't we we don't we miss that point. So in other words, we think we can be still be neurotic and help people. We can't. We're limited, you know. Yeah. So I know that compassion often gets paired with the notion of emptiness, even with bodhicitta. It, you know, it's relative, aspirational, which is doing mm -hmm. uh, good work for people. But then there's the ultimate element, sure. which is emptiness sure. and i've heard that it arises right. from that 
So I don't know if this is too deep for uh, people who have never heard this, but how do those things interrelate? I understand. Well, you know, I think, yeah, okay. So if we take the Buddhist analysis that says everybody suffers because we have this deeply instinctive, deep in the bones of our being. And of course, as we know from the Buddha's view, we've taken it from, we brought with us from countless past lives. You just take that as an interesting point. So we get born already with this deeply instinctive ego grasping, they call it. And the effect of that is a sense of a separate me, bereft, cut off, separate, you know, and the main voices of that wrong, that ego grasping are attachment, this emotional hunger. And then when it doesn't get what you want, the response is anger. And then all the other dramas are a result. This is why we suffer. This is why we suffer. So the consequence for oneself is that they cause us to be miserable every day, to be cut off from others, to never be satisfied, to always be upset, to blame everybody else. You're totally miserable. And incidentally, it causes you to harm others. So That's the wisdom. So the wisdom side leads to emptiness. Compassion doesn't lead to emptiness. The wisdom side is what leads to, because as you progress, controlling your body, controlling your speech, controlling your mind, less an attachment, less an anger, like I said before, you naturally are moving towards a sense of less of a neurotic eye and more of a sense of connected with others. So then you practice the compassion wing, but you can't have one without the other. You can practice conventional bodhicitta but you've got to realize you've got to do the wisdom wing and finally realize emptiness realize the absence of that fantasy eye it's a very specific type of approach so the two go together perfectly you can have compassion only but you've got to have wisdom you can only have wisdom and not compassion it's never enough you've got to have both and they're both very specific approaches you know have you recognized because you have um a history with being like the leftist uh like radical movements Um, do you recognize in some of those uh, social systems the desire to be compassionate without wisdom? Have you ever seen that in anything you've interacted with, and potentially? What oh, I think that very. Could be? I think I think that's yeah. I think that's the limit, the limiting part, and I think especially because for myself, when I I'm quite radical. I remember when I, you know, like I'm quoting now what I said before about Martin Luther King. I thought he, I didn't like him. I preferred Malcolm X, who was radical and no nonsense and get out there and demonstrate and kick and yell and scream. I, I liked that aspect. That was my nature. It's only now I can appreciate um, Martin Luther King's approach, which is much more humble, you know, I would say, more humble than shouting and yelling. I saw some, I saw there was some virtue in shouting and yelling. So what am I, so I'd say, that was the limitation that I found. I was definitely compassionate. I, I, I sacrificed my life. I was out there working. I worked full time. I didn't have a main job. I was demonstrating, doing all the political literature, first as you know, black politics, then, then feminist politics. I was very committed, 100% committed. I was always trying to find the way to make the world a better, happy, a, a more happy place. But I never referred it to myself. So I was stunted in my ability to help others because my anger was so tremendous, and I felt it was noble to have that anger because I, I just, I confused the finding fault with the anger. So it's only really since, the, for me, the Buddhist approach that I've learned to not give up the wish to help, just lessen the neurotic aspect. Hopefully, a little bit. That's the idea. So I think that is what limits political activity. It's hugely. And I remember the Dalai Lama saying one time when he was asked by a journalist, the journalist said, well, anger looks like it's very proactive. It looks like it makes you act. He said, I know what you mean. But if you're mainly motivated by anger, you don't last. You give up. But if it's motivated by compassion, you never give up. And when that compassion is active, not weak and pathetic, then it's very powerful, I'd say. So I think, yeah, absolutely. In other words, you, if you don't work on yourself, how can you be beneficial to others? You're too limited. Yeah. It's just not possible. And that's the wisdom wing that yeah. I found to be quite certain. Yeah, it seems to me that moving through life in a very compassionately focused way, there's a level of communication that n- ends up happening because people can feel like you have clarity, but you're, you're not attacking them. And I find that communication when you're actually yeah. connecting is a very energizing and invigorating. And I feel to what Mm -hmm. you're saying about having the, being able to go the distance requires that sense of um, giving and taking. I think so. And I think here, the main thing we need to understand is, is, is the, um, the compassion that the Buddha talks about is a much more profound level of compassion. I think it's something to talk about. It's very interesting. I think the moment the compassion we tend to have is only 
for people who are experiencing the major suffering, like the victims and poverty and, and racism and sexism, you know, and suffering and being abused and tortured. But the Buddha's view is that everybody is suffering because everybody is driven by attachment and anger and jealousy and pride. And, of course, if you have the big long-term Buddhist view of karma, we all are going from life to life to life to life, bringing our own stuff with us, our own goodness and our own badness, and we're continually, you know, blaming. I mean, we're continually, you know, I punch you, the next life you punch me, and then I punch, and it never ends, you know, in a way. So the Buddhist approach is in this from the wisdom wing point of view. He's trying to show us that we've got to understand that we that our attachment and fears and jealousy and depression are the main source of our pain and suffering and it's not it's not getting the people who do it off the hook not at all when we really realize i suffer because of that then it is easy to look at the harmers out there and see that this as a result of their anger and their rage and their despair and their jealousy is why they harm others, and that is why they are suffering. So until you know your own suffering, it's not possible to have empathy for others. You know, you just you just want to blame and point fingers. So until we re and this is, I think we miss this part in the West. We liked we we miss this part. I think. So the deeper compassion is that we're all got anger and depression and jealousy and low self esteem, and these are the source of our pain. And we know in our own lives, Brett, I swear to you, if any of us have done even only one thing in our life to harm another. Only one. Guess what? You didn't do it out of love and compassion. You did it out of hurt, resentment, jealousy, anger. It's natural. That's when we hurt others. So we, when we own it ourselves, our own, we become much more humble, more confident, and therefore more empathetic to others. And, and, and empathy and compassion are not weak. That's the biggest mistake. You can talk about courageous compassion. If the body suffers, you know, they see that we're all harming ourselves. And so that's why I like the Tibetans are a good example. They're, they're very proactive. They're really good political activists, but they don't have anger against the Chinese, which is quite shocking because they've ruined their country, destroyed their country in 60 years, you know. But they have an understanding of karma. That's why I like to tell this particular story, which is always very shocking. 2003, Richard Gere, who you know is a Buddhist, you know is a Buddhist he invited the Dalai Lama to teach in New York and um, – and, he, and so Richard decided, we discussed it, he, he decided to invite 20 former prisoners, all of whom had done some kind of meditation in prison, to come to this event. <coughs> and he invited people like me who'd worked with people in prison. It was very moving. It was a very wonderful day. And it was a whole cross-section of Americans, black, white, Puerto Rican, Mexican, male, female. It was very moving. And they met His Holiness and it was a wonderful day. But he also invited two young Tibetan nuns who'd been sexually abused and tortured in prison. So, of course... <coughs> I mean, if you have the classic philosophical materialist view, and that's the way to put the material, the scientific view that we have in the world, that your mother and father make you, you're only the brain, there's nothing, there's no soul, there's no spirit, there's no non-physical component, which is the physical, which is the scientific view, and that's the prevailing view in the world. If you have that view, then it makes sense that your mother and father made you, and therefore they're the blame, and so if bad things happen, if someone punches you in the nose, there's no logical reason for it, so no wonder. So if you take the Buddhist view, it's a very different view, you know, but you you bring your own consciousness with you. It's imprinted with all your actions, negative and positive. It's like we are the, we are our own creators. The Dalai Lama calls the law of karma like self-creation, which is basically everything we think and do and say programs our mind, and that mind, which is not physical, will then leave this body and will produce our next future lives. I mean, it's a different view. So these Tibetans, this is a view that's been around for 3,000 years, you know, the Indians were the ones first who came up with this. Then Buddha diverged in his own direction, and he's that's a fundamental view in Buddhism. So these young these young Tibetan women, this view has been in their culture for twelve hundred years. It's like in their bones. In the same way that the materialist view is in our bones, and we take it as a given, they take karma as a given. It's nothing surprising to them, you know. So then, because they've got that view, and because they're really working on their minds, putting their money where their mouth is with their practice. There they were talking about their suffering. One was in tears. But what was really clear to the Americans was they weren't angry. And this is a big shock. But if you analyze anger, the, the conceptual story of anger is, how dare you do that to me? I don't deserve it. So that's huge in our minds. And that's reasonable if you came from your mother and father. It's reasonable. You know, because that person who rapes you or who takes your money or punches you in the nose, you've never met them before. But it's the same with happiness. It's out of the, we call it good luck and bad luck, you know. So, the, but the, for the Tibetan, these young women for whom karma is totally natural, 
They have an explanation for why bad things are happening. They have an explanation for why good things are happening. And that gives them the ability to be accountable and to own their experiences. So they weren't angry with these, these torturers and these, you know, these sexual abusers. And at the end, one of them was very quiet and she said, and of course, we had compassion for our torturers because we knew we must have harmed them in the past and because, this is the most powerful point, because we know they will suffer in the future because we create our own selves. This I've, I've always found the, the, the karmic view, when you understand it properly, you can understand it badly, you know, there's really wrong views about it. It's a very powerful concept, you know. I found when I first met the Buddha's teachings, the karmic one was really was one that I thought I'd been missing. I find it very powerful because it demands accountability, like those young women that they realize they have a view for why the suffering is happening, but also happiness. They know why there's happiness as well because we are the creators. Yeah. So that's, I find, pretty powerful. Yeah, it's. I'm not going to pretend to know the full implication of karma because I know it's so it's, deep, but just the little bit that I is. have touched in, I, I feel the sense mm. of settling into my experience a lot deeper mm. and a sense of curiosity and openness rather than um, that aversion. You know, there's a sense of like, well, why, is, right. why is this here? You know, why am I feeling this thing? How long have I been feeling this thing? Mm. Yes. Yeah, very good point. That's a nice way to put it, Bruce. I think the way I like to talk about karma, because I mean, it's just the simplest way to put it for me is that we've got the Buddha would say that these countless consciousnesses, the word they use, mind or conscious, are virtually synonymous. And there are countless sentient beings. And the term in Tibetan is very nice. It's sem chen, which means mind possessor. There are countless mind possessors. He does not oppose a creator at all. There's very, you know, deep philosophical discussions about this. This is this point he diverged from the Hindus. He doesn't say that our mother and father give us a mind, which is pretty shocking for us because we think they did. They give us a brain, but they don't give us our mental tendencies, our love, our compassion, our kindness, our being good at football or music or anger for that matter. We bring those with us. That's the major point. So, so the most basic approach to that, then, if, if you recognize that you came into this world program with your own tendencies, good and bad, then it, it it lessens the victim view. It lessens not fair. It lessens how dare I didn't ask to get born. This is the commonest thing we say. We realize we created the cause to be who we are, and we created the cause for all the happy experiences and the suffering ones. It's a pretty big leap, but once we get used to it, it's very empowering because then you start to, you know, Buddha uses the, the analogy of seeds and fruits. So when you have the view of karma, I find it's like whatever you meet in your life, it's your your life is your garden. So if the bad things happen, you planted those seeds. If the good things happen, you planted those seeds. But the tragedy is we tend to only think of karma in terms of the bad things, you know. I joke, but I'm serious when I say no one has ever asked me the question, why do good things happen? We only ask why the bad things happen, you know. Yeah. We're a bit addicted to misery, I think. But karma is very powerful if we take that view. And this, those young nuns are a very perfect example of it. You know. The efficacy of the view. And that reminds me also, another a friend of mine who works with people in prison, he's an American in North Carolina, Andre. Years ago, his son was murdered in a bar. And he was interviewed on the television that night. And they said, how do you feel about the murderer? And he's a Buddhist. And he immediately was in tears of compassion for the murderer, the, for the boy. He said, how can I not have compassion for him? His suffering is only just beginning. I mean, that's intense, isn't it? That is. And it's true. It's true. Because if it's your son who is a murderer, you'd only have compassion for him. But we, you know, we want to have anger. So it was very profound. Wow. That's that's touching. Yeah. Yes. You know, this idea of karma is also, I feel like it opens up for genuine celebration of your unique embodiment. You know, I think a lot of people, when they first yeah, tap like into that. this, right. they, they imagine that yeah. in order to do these kinds of practices, you have to convert into one neutral mono expression of what spirituality is. But the more you touch into yeah. really celebrating your unique uh, disposition, you know, that's something that really touched me about your teaching style is you do have this energy about you that I find to be very unique amongst a lot of Buddhist teachers. Mm -hmm. And you really have honed in on that and used that energy in a very skillful way. And I think that that is a transformative um, idea that you don't really have to get rid of the things in order to actually take no, That's a big, I think a cliche, that's right. It's a cliched kind of view that, which all turn into this kind of passive clone of other passive clones. It's really awful. It's so such a superficial understanding. I think that's what I like about um, 
Well, I mean, if you meet Tibetans, you look at Tibetans. Dalai Lama, he's such a good example. He's funny, he's loud, he's, he's, he's very powerful. He's not this cliched view of a nice, peaceful person, which we think is like a little wimpy person. It's, and, and that's what I find about the Tibetans. They're very authentic. There's no pretending to be holy and, per, you know, they're very authentic. And I find that very important because yeah. Buddhas come in all shapes and sizes, you know, not just one shape. Yeah. Busy Buddhas, loud Buddhas, fast Buddhas, slow Buddhas, it's all right. Be, we, be who we are, be authentic. Come that's on. really important. But like you said before, we can extract the, 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 the valid parts of our mind, get rid of the unhappy bits, not chuck the whole baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. It's really important. Yeah. So we are nearing the end of our allotted time, and I did have one question I wanted to throw by you. Um, yeah. And this is relating to your work. Um, I mean, the fact that you've taken these teachings to people who are serving life sentences, some of the most, mm -hmm. like I said, dire circumstances, and you've also Definitely. taught householders and other monastic people. So I, I'm curious, have you recognized an un, unexpected similarity between all of these people that you just would not have predicted? Well, I think we have cliched views of a person who's a child and a person who's a householder, a person who's a homosexual, a person who's a prisoner. We have all these labels, and they are valid labels. You are a prisoner, you are a homosexual, you are a householder, you are a child, but we give them too much power. We're all human beings. It's such a cliche. But, I mean, I find that we are totally the same. There's not a fraction of difference. So the teachings I give to people in prison, they can be even more receptive to it because their situations are so dire. And they really take the opportunity. But for me, there's not a, there's no difference. This is, this is, I find the Buddhist model of the mind is absolutely applicable to every human being, every person, you know, there's no doubt. The similarities are clearly far more than the differences. Those labels we use are true labels, but they're very superficial. We give too much power to those labels. Yeah. You know, that's the problem. That's, 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 like, that's the politics, isn't it? Male, female, black, white, this, that. We all do it, but it's just they're so superficial labels. They're facts, but they're superficial labels. You know, they're not, they're not at the core. So uh, the real one that can, that not even our humanity, you know, I mean, the Buddhist view is what I found very powerful when I first heard the teachings. Because if we take the, the Buddhist view of what the mind is, consciousness, it's in its nature completely pure. So, and that's the one thing that combines it. So we, you're not, your mind is not male or female or dog or, bi, or non-binary or anything. They're just characteristics that we take on board karmically. But the, the fundamental, our fundamental nature is our own goodness and clarity and wisdom and, and um, positive qualities that we have to learn to uncover and, and, and become, you know. That's what combines, that's what uh, we all share. And the dogs and the ants and the monkeys as well. They've all got the same nature. Mm. Wonderful. I feel like that's uh, a great place to uh, end this. So uh, for listeners who are just buzzing with uh, the nature of your delivery, where can they keep plugging into your teachings and how could they maybe get involved a little bit more with what you have going on? Uh, there's a website, my name, Rabina Corton, and I think on there I have, um, I do a uh, people write to me, so I have a question and answer every week, a letter. I do a blog every week, and there are podcasts there, and there's um, uh, my schedule for my teachings, which are on Zoom and in person around the world, and then also there's, a, I think there's a YouTube channel with teachings on it. Wonderful. That's yeah. it. I've also really enjoyed your your Instagram posts as well. I find those. Oh, good. Be... Okay, that's right. I forgot about those. It's social media yeah. business. That's right. Yeah. Instagram and it's on TikTok, I think, and other things. That's right. Now, thirty minutes. My 30 second, my, no, my 60 second, 90 second little. So there's an advantage in talking fast, Brett. Get yeah. plenty in in one set, in one minute. Yeah, it's a lot to think about. Wonderful. Can I sing a prayer? I'll sing a little prayer to finish. May I sing a little yes. prayer about bodhicitta, compassion. May compassion, it's like 30 seconds, maybe less. Compassion grow and grow in the hearts of all. Chang chub sem chogrin poche, ma ke panam ke guchig, ke panyam pa me pa yang, gong ne gong du pelva That's it. Okay. Thank you so much, Venerable Ravina. I really appreciate this. It's okay. Thank you, John. So yeah. sorry. It's okay. Right. Thank you for having me. You're doing a great job. You keep moving, okay? It's wonderful Thank what you. you're doing. You I as well. Yeah. Great. Thank you, Bye. sweetheart.
All right, everybody, that was the episode. Thank you so much for listening all the way through till the end. Rabina really did make that an easy one for us, I'm sure. If you want to stay in touch with her platform, head on over to rabinacorton.com. Uh, check out some of her teachings. Uh, she does a lot of Zoom stuff, really incredible. Uh, really encourage the social media connection. Uh, I'm sure if you resonated with this episode, you're already there. Uh, yeah, that was it. Thank you again so much. We'll see you in two weeks with another conversation. Appreciate each and every one of you. I continue making the show for you in particular. All right. Have a good week.